Thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of the Public Health Networker podcast. We're really excited to get started with this series of podcast episodes about environmental justice, about the pandemic, and other serious issues that are impacting public health in community, global, and environmental health in the United States and around the world. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno, and I started the Public Health Podcast Network to discuss these major issues and to bring grassroots and creative solutions to public health challenges outside of the agency. How can we do more in different new ways so that we can create new solutions to some of these major challenges that we're facing? So I've reached out to academics. I've reached out to business owners, entrepreneurs. I've reached out to students and built this network of the Public Health Podcast Network. And in this inaugural episode, we're gonna be discussing OSHA. We're gonna be discussing environmental health and the different needs that are currently needed to protect people from COVID-19 as things are already opening up. Things have already been open and have never stopped in certain industries, especially in industries affecting people of color in factories and in places where they don't have the luxury of being able to work remotely or work from home and working in congested spaces. Working in spaces that require transportation and long distances in groups with groups of people. So this episode is about these different environmental hazards and the policy needs that are out there. So today we actually attended the APHA annual meeting and we were able to listen into a couple of different conference presentations. And one in particular really stands out at the moment as we were talking about this particular issue. And it had to do with environmental justice and workplace justice. And this particular presenter discussed it as environmental social justice. This presentation was done by Professor David Michaels of George Washington University. And he discussed the relationship between environmental health and environmental justice, and also the need to further engage OSHA in public health measures. Public health needs more collaboration with occupational safety at this time. And so I just wanted to share, that was one of the highlights of the conference today, as we heard about occupational environmental justice and the article that David Michaels just recently uh, released with Dr. Robert Bullard, the father of environmental justice. And that article will be shared in the show notes. And it is from thenation.com entitled Environmental Justice is Essential in the Workplace and at Home. And I'm speaking about this in this introduction because we're speaking today with Justin Feldman. He is a Harvard fellow Today, we're speaking with Justin Feldman. He is a Health and Human Rights Fellow, the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard. So he's gonna be talking to us today about social inequality and social epidemiology in the context of environmental safety and environmental justice during COVID-19. We are pleased to present our partner, the HPP Podcast. The HPP Podcast offers context and new perspectives drawn from articles published in the Health Promotion Practice Journal. The podcast and journal are dedicated to the art and science of health promotion, 
with the broader goals of health equity and social justice. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of the Public Health Networker. This is our inaugural episode, and we are really excited to be discussing some very important issues about how to solve some of these major world issues at the moment and how public health can play a role in this. And so today we're speaking to Dr. Justin Feldman. Welcome you to talk to us today about epidemiology, social inequality, and how we can together collectively as epidemiologists, public health professionals, how can we solve some of these major problems? Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And yeah, so I'm, I'm a social epidemiologist and I'm at, at Harvard's FXP Center, which focuses on health and human rights. And, and more recently over the last couple of years has focused more specifically on structural racism and health. Thank you. And this is why I, I very much appreciate your uh, participation today in our inaugural episode because health equity is at the center of a lot of the work that we do here at the Public Health Podcast Network. So um, please tell us a little bit about some of the major concerns that you've seen out there as it relates to the workforce and the pandemic, what's going on in the workplace that are some major issues at the moment? So there's a lot of evidence out there that workplaces are one of the important sites for how and where COVID is spreading. Um, so there's, I, I wrote um, back in January, I wrote an article for the, the magazine Jacobin about um, the, the workplace and the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Um, and basically the argument I make is that uh, at that point, that was before vaccines were widely available. Uh, you had governors all over the country blaming uh, small social gatherings, basically voluntary independent uh, actions uh, of people for the spread of the virus while ignoring the role of workplaces in spreading the virus um, or even, even denying that workplaces were responsible for exposing exposing workers to the virus. Uh, but there's, a, there's been and there continues to be a whole lot, lot of evidence that workplace matters, uh, especially when you get to talking about racial inequality and class inequality in not just hospitalization and death, but in who gets exposed and infected in the first place. So white people, people of color, uh, basically equally likely to go to social gatherings during the pandemic. However, you have much higher infection rates. You can see that on some of these antibody survey studies, much higher infection rates specifically among uh, lower income, lower SES uh, people of color. And that largely in, in my view has to do with workplace exposure, with exposure in more crowded households. Um, but there's been, until very recently, I would say there's been an under-acknowledgement of the role of workplaces. We now see, and, and I'm sure we can go into that in a little bit more detail in a, in a bit, um, but OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, um, finally in a, in a position where they're going to issue a regulation that would cover workers in general industry from SARS-CoV-2 exposure, mostly through vaccination or testing requirements. But there's 
there's more to the story there that, that we can continue with in a bit. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for talking about this. And uh, I think this is very crucial and very central to this podcast, even talking about the workforce, the workplace, even the public health workforce and the public health workplace, right? So in public health, environmental health, for example, they have to go out and um, visit sites, for example, how much exposure are they also exposing themselves to as public health professionals? I think that um, we need to also acknowledge our part in how we are involved in exposure and how we can um, not only prevent public health professionals from getting sick, but also how we can help the um, workforce out there at large from being exposed to COVID and infected and continuing to spread this virus. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I would say I'm not I'm I'm not that sure about how people out in local health departments, for example, or state health departments, are being protected. Um, certainly, if you're in in an office every day with lots of other people around you, you're uh, at risk of exposure. I would imagine that the conditions in a state or local government office are a bit safer than, for example, um, the kitchen at restaurants where we saw pretty high rates of, of outbreak and, and continue to see outbreaks of, of, of COVID. Um, and you know, we, we've seen reports about meatpacking plants, uh, basically places that are where workers are close to one another or where workers are exposed to many customers, particularly when there's no masks, particularly when there's poor ventilation. Now at this point, particularly when, when vaccination rates are low. What we have is a, a lot of workers in these higher risk jobs are working those jobs. There's not protections in place that the employer is, is uh, managing like ventilation or mask rules and that kind of thing. And the same populations at this point continue to have pretty low vaccination rates. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and at this point, you know, there's, I think, 2,000 or more people dying of COVID every day. And we don't seem to be in a particularly good position. Um, and again, so much of the emphasis has been on individual behavior. Um, at this point, largely individual behavior around whether or not one chooses to be vaccinated. And I think we've really let uh, employers off the hook here because they have such an important role to play in either exposing their workers or preventing their workers from being exposed on the job. Uh, and that's a real question of power. And regulation of workplaces is expensive in many cases and businesses don't like it and businesses organize to oppose it. And under the Biden administration, as soon as his, his first full day in office, he decided he issued a, a an executive order saying that he would authorize OSHA to look into creating regulations that would protect workers in the workplace. And there was an initial 700 plus page draft of regulations that didn't really go far enough, but they would have imposed rules around quarantine and isolation and testing, uh, wearing masks, ventilation. Uh, the, these weren't up to the level that I think they should have been at, um, but nevertheless, they would have provided some level of protection. 
in the end, it didn't happen. In the end, they came up with a much narrower rule that was weaker than what was first proposed, and that was only applied to the healthcare sector. Um, and that was after lobbying from industry groups that, that opposed it. Um, and then months went by, and um, now we have a new proposed OSHA rule, which is only about, I mean, we, we haven't seen all the details yet, but as it's been explained, it's only about um, requiring vaccination or requiring weekly tests um, for, for workers, which will provide some level of protection, um, but certainly doesn't go as, as far as, as I, I think it could be. Right, and there's so many questions that still remain as it relates to testing. I've seen these seven day windows of testing, 72 hour windows of testing. What happens if someone were to go to a social event 24 hours ago? Like, you know, there's just so much uncertainty as it relates yeah. to it. Yeah, I would, the, the testing once a week, one probably isn't enough because of the amount of time it takes. I mean, it's, it's variable, there's very individual variation in time between when someone is exposed and when they become infectious. One, a one week time window is gonna miss a whole bunch of cases. Um, that's one question. Another question is, are there going to even be enough tests available uh, once this OSHA rule comes into place? There's a testing shortage in the US, both of the rapid antigen take home tests and of uh, capacity to run PCR tests in a lab setting. And the Biden administration said that they would increase testing capacity through the Defense Production Act. That was only announced 11 days ago. Um, there's, you know, he's been president since January 20th. Uh, we see other countries with widely available uh, and, and free or very low cost testing. We don't have that in the US and to, to get that it's going to take time and we really don't have time. We don't, we really don't. I mean, we're looking at an exponential growth rate of this virus as, as it works. And it is difficult with workplace regulations. I, I kind of sympathize or empathize with the fact that employees have had to become public health regulators in their own way, that um, an employer or a business owner has had to, in their own way, somehow become an epidemiologist in their own way has somehow decided or had to decide what public health regulation should look like. And OSHA is what we need at this time for more clarification. Um, it shouldn't necessarily um, to an extent have to be the role of an employer to be a public health person. Yeah, exactly. Up to now, in so some some states have done their own workplace regulations. I would say a small number of states, but beyond that, um, it's largely been left to voluntary guidance. And then each um, each workplace, whether it's you know for profit workplace or a school, which has been a you know subject to a lot of discussion and debate, each individual district or each individual school or each individual. Um, you know, business location has had to make their own determinations. Um, they're inconsistent between one place and another. Customers get confused if it's that kind of workplace. 
you have workers who become enforcers of, of rules around masking, for instance, who then are targeted by violence, sometimes often gendered and racialized forms of violence, uh, as, as we've, we've seen in some higher profile uh, incidents where, where people, you know, customers are, are opposing this. And you really have government not doing the job that they should be doing. Um, and you also have these pre-existing uh, pre-existing political conditions uh, where we don't have enough state capacity because of years of underinvestment in public health to do the job that government needs to do. So OSHA, the federal agency, has covers 23 states. Uh, I think, you know, maybe it's 20-something states. I may, may be having the number a little bit wrong. Um, they have fewer than a thousand inspectors cover millions and millions of workplaces in these states. Some states have their own OSHA plans. Similar, they don't have nearly enough inspectors to go out and, and enforce the rules. Um, putting out a rule though is still effective because a lot of employers will respond to it um, and you don't necessarily need to do an inspection to, uh, for a worker to call OSHA and then for them to take some action. Um, but also OSHA's fines are very low. They're often in the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars that especially for a bigger business, um, they just see it as a cost of doing business. And this new proposed rule around vaccine or test, um, the Biden administration has decided to only apply it to uh, businesses with 100 or more employees. So that's leaving out about 50 million workers um, and disproportionately Latino or Latinx workers who, who tend to work for smaller businesses. Um, and it's also going to be concentrating on enforcement on businesses that can really afford to break the rules. Right, and from a social epi perspective, I have a couple of questions as it relates to what can we do about this? What do we need to do now? But I guess to lead up to that, thinking about all of the restaurants and a lot of places here where it's just like, I see signs where it's just like now hiring for all positions, everything. And here in California, um, if you go into any kitchen, most likely you're gonna see Latinx um, chefs, cooks, people in the background, dishwashers. Um, I'm just, I would love to hear your perspective and your thoughts on why is there this shortage? Um, why is, you know, if we're looking at the Latinx population, um, I don't wanna take it too far, but culturally, work is something that people are very proud of. And, you know, for us to see this lack of um, finding employees out there, um, we've seen it in the farm worker field as well, right? So I would love to hear your perspective from a social epi perspective on what is going on in terms of workforce need and what should we, or what can we do in public health? Yeah, I think, there's been a lot of like discussion and debate among economists, which I, you know, I'm not an economist, but I, I follow it from, from afar, I would say, on what, what accounts for the labor shortage and the labor shortage in particular industries. There were um, people were claiming that the increased unemployment benefits, the pandemic unemployment assistance was one of the primary causes, but it, it seems to be that that's not true because that, 
that assistance has ended um, at, through the entire country at this point, and we've not seen a bounce back in, in hiring. Um, the pandemic and the, all the various uh, things that have cascaded from the pandemic have, one, resulted in a crisis of childcare. Um, so you have parents, disproportionately women, out of the workforce um, needing to take care of children uh, for a longer period of time. That's one aspect, I think. Um, another is sort of people reevaluating after having worked through a pandemic, reevaluating re uh, you know, what conditions they will be put up with. Um, and then I think an important but understated issue is that people are afraid, continue to be afraid of getting infected at work. Uh, and that may cause them to, if they can avoid it, uh, not, not work outside the home, not work in certain high-risk industries. And I think that points to a need to, one, make these workplaces safer, um, and two, to give people, continue to give people the money they need to stay home and protect themselves. Um, I think, you know, that there really is no, it doesn't make sense to end the pandemic unemployment assistance program although that's, that's what's happened. Um, and you think about people, especially if they have high-risk conditions themselves or live with or are caretakers to people with high-risk conditions, um, it's like, what are they supposed to do? Uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act protects people in certain situations. So if you, if you are in a kind of workplace that could allow remote work, for instance, um, and you yourself are the person who needs protection, that may be an avenue to pursue. But the ADA doesn't apply to uh, people living in your household. It doesn't make as much sense for infectious disease exposure, uh, especially for a respiratory virus. Um, so I really think we need to think about how to compensate people and how to make, um, if, we're, if we're going to allow the virus to spread, which we really shouldn't, how, how do you make it up to the people who are in these situations where either their housing or workplace situation no longer makes sense? Um, and then there's, of course, like more we can do to stop the spread of the virus, uh, which, which we're not doing. Uh, we're relying mainly on vaccination, which is great, really important tool, um, but not enough to make the virus go away. Yeah, there's just so much that still needs to be done. But I suppose here as public health communicators, is there anything that you would suggest that we could do at, in research, in publications, in podcasting, in the media? What can public health epidemiologists and policymakers, researchers do at this time? Yeah. So I think there are certain kinds of dominant framing that are out there that I think is important to, to reframe, to change the narrative. And I think the harmful forms of framing are around turning the entire pandemic into a question of individual responsibility and individual blame. Um, it is true that there's a lot of people who aren't vaccinated uh, and that can be frustrating. And you know, thinking about people in your own life in my own life, um, it may, you may think about a person who's unvaccinated and, and get really angry. Um, 
that's fine, but that doesn't make a policy response. Uh, so we're, we're in a position that's really letting, with that narrative, we're letting policymakers and institutions off the hook if we turn it all into anti-vaxxers, especially because most people who aren't vaccinated are not really anti-vaxxers. Uh, most of them will uh, respond to things like mandates, better outreach, uh, paid sick days to, to go get, get vaccinated, which in fact is part of the new proposed OSHA rule. Um, we, we've, we've made the vaccines available, but that's a different thing from making them accessible to people who may, you know, if you're, if you're someone who worked through the whole pandemic and you kind of just like got used to it and never experienced any kind of public health measures, uh, so life didn't really change for you, uh, and you were told the whole time that you're low risk, maybe because you're not, you know, 65 or older, like I can understand why someone who received those messages might not feel an urgency to get vaccinated. Uh, and it's not, it's not all, you know, white Trump voters who are unvaccinated. Uh, half of the unvaccinated population didn't vote for Trump. Um, and disproportionately, unvaccinated people are black, unvaccinated people are lower income and lower education. Um, so, so when I see, you know, at, at worst, people making fun of those who are unvaccinated and then die, um, that's, that's a really bad place to be in. Um, so I, I think what we should be doing as, as communicators in public health is pointing to the collective problem of the pandemic. It's not a pandemic of the unvaccinated, the pandemic of all of us that we all are part of because we live in societies where we breathe the same air and it's a respiratory virus. Um, and that means there's collective solutions, which are policy solutions, which happen in schools and workplaces and which are subject to uh, you know, the governor and president's orders. They are not doing enough. In other countries, they're doing a lot more. Certain other countries are doing a lot more to, uh, if not eliminate the spread entirely of SARS-CoV-2, then mitigate it and bring it to lower levels. The, I, I think um, making international comparisons is a really useful way to communicate and talk about what is possible in the US. Uh, in U.S. policy, because you you can talk about a place like New Zealand or Australia where rate, rates have been much, much, much lower. Um, and you may get pushback and say, oh, those are islands, we can't possibly do that. Well, the, the U.S., if you compare the U.S. to other wealthy nations, we are doing among the worst compared to other OECD countries in death rates, uh, because we really haven't done much of anything to, to stem the tide. Right, in the United States, we just have so much work to do comparatively, collectively. Um, what impacts us impacts the world. What impacts other countries is going to also impact us, hopefully for the benefit of also improving um, this pandemic, hopefully we can learn from those comparative examples of what's going well, um, kind of case studies, best case, um, what do you call them, best practices and case studies that we can use 
here in the United States. So there is so much that we can do in public health. And so I would love for you to tell us how we can learn more about your work. How can we connect with you? Tell us, you know, I'm, I'll definitely share your publication that you share with us in, from Jacobin Magazine. And um, how can we reach out to you? How can we learn more about you? Sure. So my Twitter is probably, if you're on Twitter, probably the best place to, to see what I've been working on recently. It's jfeldman underscore epi, E-P-I. Um, and my, my Jacobin article is, is a pretty good place to start in terms of occupational exposure. Um, it, it's not up to date with the latest attempts by OSHA to regulate, um, but, but it does explain the importance of the workplace as a setting for SARS-CoV-2 spread and also as a cause of uh, racial and economic inequality in the, in the toll of the pandemic. Okay, well, thank you so much. We will definitely share those links from Twitter and your recent article in the show notes. And uh, we look forward to working with you um, continuously throughout the future, uh, working collectively to stop this pandemic and also to improve health equity out there in various, various capacities. Thank you so much for joining us today, Justin. Thanks for having me, I appreciate it. For more information about the Public Health Podcast Network, visit us at publichealthpodcasters.com. You could also find us on Twitter at phpodcasters or on Instagram at publichealthpodcasters. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Public Health Networker. For more information about the Public Health Podcast Network, visit us at publichealthpodcasters.com. You could also find us on Twitter at phpodcasters or on Instagram at publichealthpodcasters. Thank you.